This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Kamal Ahmed, who is a scholar of Islamic history and philosophy, who's been based at CTI for the past six months, working on the Templeton Project and on a number of other projects in the field. Welcome to the podcast, Kamal. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks so much, Josh. It's lovely to interact with you in this format. Well, it's been great to have you at CTI and learn so much from you, uh, so much of the richness of the Islamic tradition in, in theology, philosophy, law, history. I, I want to get a talk in a bit about the whole project you've been doing through Templeton over the last few years, uh, including at Princeton University. Uh, maybe before that, could you say a bit about your own journey towards this, your own background? I know uh, the core curriculum program at the University of Chicago was an important juncture point, but even before and after that, maybe say a bit about the journey that led you to this project. Yeah, so I mean, the project started in 2020, and I was, I had quite lived many years until then, so it's a bit of a long journey. But I think the academic part of my journey really does begin with my undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago. And, and that's something I've mentioned to you and some other friends at CTI, that the core curriculum at Chicago, the way it was taught to me and the way I studied it, really gave me a sense of the interplay of texts and contexts and histories and ideas, and how they travel and how they interact. And I think just that experience in so many ways just really changed my life trajectory. And it wasn't just the core. Also then, you know, there's a very specific aspect of the core, which was the sequence in Islamic civilization. And that hooked me so much that I ended up basically fulfilling the requirements of the Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations major and then when I graduated from University of Chicago, I started also studying Islam in a more traditional sense uh, with some scholars um, looking at scripture, prophecy, ethics, law, spirituality. And I was sort of at a juncture in my life that, you know, what do I want to do? And then I just decided to continue my studies of Islamic thought in any and all ways possible, whether through a seminary, through academia. But my lens was always, I think, in many ways, that training that I got in Chicago. So I'm, yeah, I'm very much indebted to that experience. You may want to speak to to the aspect and the sense to which you didn't actually grow up in the Islamic tradition, but it was more through text and your own reading and research that sort of brought you into that, would you say? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I was born and raised in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, and yeah, my family was not really particularly religious, and I actually was not really exposed to many uh, religious people, not just in terms of practice, but even in terms of knowledge, or even, as you say, any sense of attachment uh, to the tradition. And I think that's why maybe history has always fascinated me, and that's why that Islamic civilization course sequence fascinated me, because I just saw this incredible history of incredibly erudite scholars, but deep thinkers, and people with really amazing hearts. Uh, I think the author that impacted me the most, and still really till today, I think still impacts me the most, is a person by the name Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, uh, and, um, you know, he has, it's not a full autobiography, it's more like a memoir, where he writes certain parts of his life that he wanted people to know and remember him by. And it's also, you know, a way of structuring certain lessons he wants people to learn. So I did not know Arabic at that time, but one of the good things about Chicago was they would really like to teach primary sources and translation. 
And when I read this work, I was just so deeply moved by him as a person and his spiritual journey and his study of philosophy, which is something that I didn't know at that time, but I would pick up, you know, how many years later, almost 30 years later. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's by encountering these great personalities of the past uh, that I really sort of embraced Islamic tradition. I know it's hard to summarize uh, whole years and decades of your life, but maybe also say a bit about your time uh, in Pakistan teaching and then also how you ended up at Oxford doing a DPhil more recently. So after uh, Chicago, I did spend some time in America do doing, you know, different internships. But then I decided ultimately to travel to Pakistan and sort of study those primary sources. And again, I, I, mean, I, I think I've said the word Chicago already so many times, but I think that emphasis on the original sources that ironically enough, I got at a modern university is what led me to go to a traditional seminary because I really wanted to read the original material. And obviously that starts first with the Quran, so the, you know, the sacred scripture of Islam, and also the, you know, what we call the hadith or the reports of the teachings of the blessed prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So I went to, I, I probably could have gone anywhere at that point because my parents would have been okay because my background is from Pakistan. My father and mother are both from Pakistan. Um, so they, I think ultimately they felt most safe if I went to Pakistan. And there were some scholars that I had met uh, who had visited the United States from there and I had family there. So I went to Pakistan and I was, I, I was, I was definitely absolutely the oldest student in the class. Uh, and, you know, the only probably university graduate in the class. Um, but it was a very good experience for me. I think one another thing beyond just the knowledge and spirituality was my own background in terms of my parents. I mean, I was American, but my parents came from a sort of a more elite class in Pakistan. And until the point that I studied in the seminary, I'd only interacted with people in my parents' circle, extended family, family friends. But when you study in the seminary, you really came across people from all walks of life, all different parts of the country, different, you know, ethnicities, languages. And I really felt, you know, that I got to understand that country much, much better through those four years. Um, and then after that, uh, as you mentioned, I did teach then in a university in Pakistan. So I taught there full time for six years. It's called the Lahore University of Management Sciences. It's more popularly known by its acronym LUMS, but it's not like a school just for management. It started as an MBA program, but it just kept that name, but it actually became like a secular liberal arts university. Uh, many people say actually the American government wanted to establish a university. You know, they're the, so there's the American University in Dubai, American University in Beirut, there's the American University in Sharjah. And they were thinking of making American University in Pakistan, but for some reasons, they didn't want to use that name. So the USA, United States Agency for International Development, uh, at that time, I think Hillary Clinton was the first lady. And she came and they gave a $10 million donation. And there's a big plaque at the university. And that donation actually enabled them to move then from management sciences and establish a full-fledged uh, liberal arts uh, undergraduate degree program. So I was hired into that undergraduate program and I was responsible for redesigning and then teaching a core curriculum course on Islamic studies. 
so that was a you know a wonderful experience, and I think I had the opportunity to really introduce some of the best practices from the Chicago core into that university because the way the Islamic studies course was structured prior to that was not really sort of at a level of academic rigor. Uh, and the students, I, I have to say, I mean, the best, the very best thing about that I remember from my experience there was the students and the interaction with them because they were brilliant. They were also very intellectually curious, open, and almost all, I wouldn't say all, but almost all came from a similar background to that of my own family in the sense that a very uh, upbringing that was completely devoid of spirituality or religion, be that faith, be that ethics, not that they're unethical, but the source of ethics was not coming from any religious tradition. And I think that that resonated with them because I sort of, even though I was born and raised in America, you know, they were more American than me in many ways, to be honest. This is a... So I, I know a lot of people in America, when they hear the word Pakistan, they don't, this is a very subclass of Pakistan. Uh, sometimes you can call them like the English educated elite, uh, very sort of mass consumers of global Western culture, Hollywood. You know, I remember when I used to visit Pakistan, my cousins would have more posters of movie stars in their rooms than I would ever have, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think the challenge of teaching that curriculum to them, and then after the core course, I was then hired into their law school as well. And then I designed the, and was a new school. So I designed from scratch a course on Islamic law and legal history. Uh, and that was actually also an incredible experience because I was able to take the seminary training and try to retranslate that back in a sort of a Chicago style language for the law students. Uh, and then I, in my final year, I also got the chance actually to design and teach an upper level class on Al-Ghazali, so that thinker I had mentioned to you earlier. So we had an entire semester-long class on him. And I think that also introduces students to sort of intellectual biography, intellectual history, and the notion that there are indeed, in fact, great thinkers in the Islamic tradition as well, who would warrant and merit a full semester-length course. And that had never been done at that university before. There had never been a course on a single Islamic thinker, although there may have been a course on Aristotle or a course on other thinkers. Yeah. I had the chance to read a, a chapter that you published in a book called, uh, actually, what is the book called? Science, uh, Islam, and Biomedicine? Is that what it's called? Let me look. Yeah, you're catching me off guard too. I can't remember. Yeah, the title uh, of, I've got it right I here. I, I wrote it. Yeah, Islam, Islam and biomedicine. biomedicine. I wrote. Yeah, it's called Islam yeah. and biomedicine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the things I, I mean, I think it it's an example of the kind of work you've been doing over the past few years, bringing this kind of liberal arts university curriculum, uh, Western philosophy and thought in dialogue with Islamic philosophy and Islamic tradition. Um. One of the great things about the chapter, I think, is the examples you provide. And I think a key like general point I took from the chapter is the way that Islamic thought and contemporary science interact can be informed by the way that Islamic philosophy and Islamic thought uh, interacted with other forms of thought in the past. So it's historical in that sense. You know, is Islamic thinkers were already, you know, in the early years, interacting with other philosophies and incorporating and looking at, you know, tensions, but also finding ways to harmonize that thinking. And that itself provides framework for Islamic thinkers to deal with contemporary science. Would that be accurate? 
Yeah, it's not just accurate. I'm actually deeply touched by listening to you because that is actually the crux of my argument. And that is, you know, because there's sort of a misconception generally in the science and religion literature, but also then in Islam and science, that somehow Islam needs to be brought into encounter with something other than itself for the very first time. And that is called science. Whereas actually, if you look at history, Muslims were engaging with Greek philosophy, Greek logic, and the Greek philosophy was basically natural philosophy, so included science, metaphysics, epistemology, so many ideas. And there's also a lot of interesting you know, accounts now we have of interaction between Muslims and Buddhist thought, Christian thought. There's a lot of interaction. So if if that's where I start, sort of maybe more as a historian, that, okay, if there's a new epistemology called science, well, let's go back in history and see how how did Muslims engage with epistemologies that were not emanating from their own scriptural and prophetic tradition. And I think there's a lot of models to be found already. Uh, so it's not that we have to start from scratch uh, with the dialogue uh, with science. Absolutely. And maybe speak to how that then developed into this fascinating project you've been working on uh, with the Templeton Foundation. So, well, that chapter actually was part of a was a, I mean, it came out of a conference paper, and I did not know it at that time originally. Uh, but that conference, when I went, at, and that was actually interestingly also at the University of Chicago, it just happened to be um, there. That conference was actually organized and sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. So that was the very first time I met uh, anyone from the foundation was at that conference. And I'm trying to remember, it was either fall 2018 or fall 2019. I can't remember which. Uh, and at that time, I was, you know, I was still living in Pakistan. Uh, I had actually st uh, also started the PhD at Oxford, sorry, which you had asked about earlier. Uh, and that was basically just I felt I should return to academia after teaching and now just write a PhD and, you know, just sort of get the credential that is needed sure, sure. to continue in academia. Um, so when I went to that conference, uh, I met some of the folks at Templeton, and that conference was really on bioethics, but for apparently biomedicine was a at that time a more a term that was coming in vogue in place of bioethics, but I don't think it took off. I'm not sure, but I think people have sort of reverted back to bioethics. Hmm. Um, and I had actually taught bioethics for five years in Pakistan at their leading uh, medical school called the Al Khan University. So I, I'll, I, it's actually bioethics where I think those five years really gave me a chance to bring philosophy, spirituality, religion, law, science, all into interaction. And that's what I basically tried to do at the conference in, in that chapter. So then I met, you know, I, I mean, the, the, the senior leadership at the Templeton Foundation. They had an initiative at that time called Analytic Theology. Uh, which is born out of the analytic philosophy of religion, which itself is born out of analytic philosophy. And they were looking for people to do analytic theology from a non-Christian perspective, because there were a lot of people working on analytic theology who were Christian and looking at it from that perspective. So actually, initially, what uh, the then you know senior vice president, he spoke to me about was this, that would you be interested in doing something on Islamic analytic theology? And to his great surprise, I told him no. <laughs> uh, and then I explained to him why. And I said that, look, I, I think that you're bringing Islam in 
at the end of a conversation. So you sort of have analytic theology comes out of analytic philosophy, religion comes out of analytic philosophy, which has certain fundamental assumptions in epistemology. I don't think you should bring Islam here. You should bring it all the way at the start because we actually have our own philosophical tradition, which is different from, you know, contemporary analytic philosophy. And let's see, you know, if we bring Islam in from the start, what conversation would emerge? So that's, so I disagree with this idea of uh, comparative analytic theology. And that was it. And then we part, you know, it, this was like a sidebar at the conference. Maybe it was lunch or tea. And so he went back to his hotel. I, you know, the day ended, we went back to our hotels. Okay, the next day, which was the last day of the conference, he came up to me like on the side. It wasn't like a proper lunch. Just like pulled me away and decided, look, I'm leaving today. But I was thinking about what you said last night. And if you can put that in writing and send it to me, we, you know, at the foundation would really consider funding something like that. And then he walked away because he had to leave early. And I, I, I'm telling you very frankly. So I started thinking to myself, what did I say yesterday? And I had to put it in writing. I couldn't remember 100% exactly what I said. And then, and I was just talking to him generally. And then to put it in writing in the, in the way that it's like a proposal for a grant. And so it was a very long process, actually. Um, but, you know, and that person, I think I can take his name. His name is Michael Murray. Uh, so he was uh, the head at that time of this division. So interestingly, he had actually started an initiative on Islam at the Templeton Foundation, which was very new for them. Uh, and he had along with him John Churchill, who was in philosophy and theology, and also another wonderful person, Rashid Dar, who they brought on as a program officer. And so Rash, uh, Michael and Rashid were at the conference. Um, and so we had different iterations and sort of long story short, uh, I sent different proposals to Templeton, met with different people over the phone because then I went back to Pakistan. Uh, and then finally, the way the grant started was that the Templeton Foundation said, we want, we would like you to partner with a philosopher and jointly do an interdisciplinary project. Uh, and they had actually a grantee, a previous grantee who had been you know, awarded a grant from Templeton, Andrew Chignell, who was a professor at Princeton University. And so they put me and Andrew in touch with each other. Uh, and this was now late 2019. And um, yeah, so I think the conference must've been fall 2018. And then, in, and I came to campus, I came to America to visit my parents also live in New York. And then I came up to Princeton and sort of Andrew met me. And then we decided to apply for this grant together. Yeah. And maybe speak a bit about sort of the future um, outputs from this grant. Like I, I read this curated guide uh, on epistemology for um for Islamic philosophers, which I found helpful, even as not being an Islamic philosopher, just as a guide to epistemology, it's a very helpful sort of annotated list of important readings. And I even found myself pulling up some of the articles and uh, starting to read some of them myself. So um, but I know you've got a number of these, and they're going to be published online. So maybe say a bit about the goals of those. Yeah, so I mean, so the research project, then once it started, its core goal was really what they call landscaping. This was a term actually that Templeton introduced me to, but it captured the reality that I wanted to do, which is basically you do a deep dive into another discipline and you're trying to map the sort of intellectual topography of that discipline 
in a way that opens up that terrain for new travelers. Uh, so this is my this is the way I explain it. Uh, and that's what I tried to do. So the travelers were people like me, people who are more familiar with uh, studied Islamic studies in the university or have been trained in Islamic thought, but also have looked at the philosophical tradition in Islam. Uh, and they want to engage in some type of conversation with contemporary Western philosophy. So in that sense, it was the same idea that was initially discussed with Templeton. But we're we're not sure how or where to begin, because obviously there's so many thinkers, so many topics, so much written. Uh, sometimes it's hard to navigate a new field. So I so then my job was just throw myself in and read as much as I can, go to as many workshops and conferences as I can, interact with as many philosophers as I can. And then one of the main outputs, uh, which I've actually realized now as the grant has come to its conclusion, which I think is, I had to realize now that it's actually a very significant output, is these guides. Uh, so let's take, for example, the guide to epistemology uh, that you had a chance to look at. So epistemology is a study of what, what is knowledge, what constitutes knowledge. So there are many discussions of that in the Islamic tradition as well. There's many sort of varied discussions of that within contemporary Western philosophy. And it's not just finding, it's very important, I want to say, it's not just finding overlap um, or, you know, finding certain Islamic philosophers who can be allies to certain strands in Western philosophical thought. It's also not about finding this aha moment that, oh, there was actually an Islamic thinker, you know, so many hundred years ago who actually said the same thing or anticipated what somebody contemporary is saying, because I actually don't think that is as big a find as people sometimes think it is. I think it's only natural that, and I think that's actually one of the interesting things about philosophy, that people coming from very different backgrounds, different perspectives, when they're looking at very deep questions, such as like, what is knowledge itself? What is testimony? Um, they can, they will arrive at very similar answers. And I think this points in a theological level to sort of the commonality between humanity and the human spirit and the human mind and the way it's searching and exploring. Uh, so the purpose of the guides really is because as any field, I'm not picking on philosophy, every field, even the academic literature and Islamic studies would be like this. There's a wide range of quality, right? And there, and some people are sort of repeating past arguments. And so it would have been helpful for me to have a guide like the one I made. What, what are the really the better works, the more seminal works, or ones that summarize in an accurate and faithful but interesting way previous discussions? So I basically then compiled these guides. Uh, and another thing I've actually planned to do is I plan to teach this material online. Uh, so this is the next phase that I'm trying to develop. And this has been in my mind for a couple of years, is what's the best way to sort of deliver courses online in the most accessible way possible to the widest audience possible on these topics. So the first is epistemology. The second is philosophy of religion. Uh, and the third is Islamic philosophy. Um, so these are the three uh, main topics. One of the questions you're interested in, which I think has a lot of purchase just in the broader public conversation, is the idea of disagreement and how disagreement itself can uh, or cannot maybe change the way we believe things, influence what we think, just by being in conversation with uh, people who have different ways of thinking or different beliefs. Um, maybe say a bit about why that's an interesting topic topic for you. Yeah, you know, as part of the research project, I 
was wary of doing something that was entirely theoretical and ivory tower and would not, you know, have practical relevance or impact. So then I started searching that I know I need to find some topic that could actually, you know, provide guidance to people today and show that guidance can be sought from religious and philosophical perspectives together. So then, because I sort of ended up focusing more on epistemology, and within that, there's an area called social epistemology, which I think really is very, very fascinating uh, and has to do with all types of issues related to knowledge, but society, communities, groups, authority, testimony, and disagreement. And when I first encountered the disagreement literature, uh, I was actually a professor at Yale, Professor John Pitchard, who came as a guest speaker in the Zoom era uh, to our project at Princeton. And I heard him and I really liked what he, he didn't talk about this topic in that presentation, but I just became very fond of him. So I looked him up and lo and behold, he'd written a book on disagreement. So then I got that book uh, and then that was really my introduction to this field. And then later I had a chance I just spend uh, a lot of time with him up at Yale. So this I mean, disagreement is a reality that every human community, every tradition has faced. And there is a lot written in the Islamic tradition about disagreement. And we call it ikhtilaf, and sometimes it's called adabul ikhtilaf, or the etiquettes of virtuously disagreeing with one another. Um, and and I, I realize that contemporary philosophers is perfectly fine, but they were unaware of this literature because most of it is in Arabic, right? Very little of this type of literature has been translated in English. That's another thing I did also for the project. I translated two short pieces on disagreement. Uh, to sort of introduce some of this material to, um, sorry, I forgot to send that to you. Uh, so to introduce some of this material. That'd be, yeah, that'd be great to, to see. And it'd be also great if that can be published somehow online yeah. or somewhere. Yeah. So the idea, I mean, I would like to publish some of these things in print form as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and also that's important in academia to have a yeah, kind of communication record. Yeah. But because, again, because I picked this topic in particular, so let me just talk very briefly a little bit about disagreement itself. And so the notion, so the, the, it, it's very interesting because I think the Islamic tradition, the Western tradition are looking at the same topic, but bringing to that topic different questions, but nonetheless, sometimes arriving at similar answers. So the major question that the Western, the contemporary Western philosophical tradition brought to the question of disagreement is that if there's somebody who you view to be what they term your epistemic peer, somebody you think is as knowledgeable as you, has access to the same evidence that you do, is has intellectual honesty and humility, is a good person, but they disagree with you. And how should that affect your own belief in your position? Right. Uh, and then and then once this discussion started, you know, this is what contemporary philosophers are. They just spin it endlessly into epicycle. And there's so many journal articles on this now in the last like 20 years. Um, but the the real main thing they wanted to look at is that should this affect your confidence or credence in your position? Interestingly, and I, I'm summarizing things here, but interestingly, in the Islamic tradition began from a fundamental assumption that was radically different from the contemporary Western one. And that is as follows, that the majority, not all, the majority of the contemporary Western philosophers believe in something that they call uniqueness. And that is that rationally, there can only be one correct answer. 
so much so that some of them have even written articles saying, like one title of an article, there's no such thing as a rational dilemma. And so this is called uniqueness. And the Islamic tradition, because there was so much difference of interpretation on the scripture itself, the Islamic tradition doesn't view rationality as unique, but rather that even rationally, it's possible to have multiple positions competing for, you know, uh, versions of truth. And contemporary philosophy calls that permissiveness, but that's a minority position in contemporary philosophy. But that was like almost entire Islamic tradition. So this itself I found very interesting, and I thought it would be of interest to Western philosophers. Mm -hmm. So an entire tradition actually weighs down on the side of permissiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, and because of that, because there's differences of opinion in the Islamic tradition, when a person encountered a peer who was disagreeing with them, it wouldn't change their confidence in their position because they had this humble understanding of knowledge that it's not that there's always only one answer. But if you think there's only one correct answer, like if I say two plus two equals four, you say two plus two equals five, right? So oh, well, let me do it the other way around. So you say two plus two equals four, I say two plus two equals five, but at least both of us know something about math that there can only be one answer, right? Now, if I really think it's five, but I know you, you're intelligent, you're nice, you're humble. So I am going to sort of reconsider my opinion because I'm going to get a bit shaky now that somebody who I respect as a knowledgeable person seems to have a different position on this. But that's because I think there's only one answer, right? But if it's something in which there could be plausibly, maybe even very plausibly, multiple perspectives, multiple answers, then when I encounter somebody who disagrees with me, I'm not going to be shaking my own position because my own position at the outset never claimed to be uniquely the only uh, truth. Um, so I think this was a major difference that I found uh, within the Western philosophical and Islamic sort of philosophical tradition on this topic. That's fascinating. And I'd really like to see the, tell me, tell us more when the publications come out so we can, I can read them and we can share them uh, through CTI yeah. outlets. Um, maybe just as even a final question. I, mean, I want to respect your time, sure. but a final question. I'm kind of curious, um, and this is something we ask a lot on this podcast. Someone who's just beginning and wants to, to to learn more about the Islamic tradition, is there a single place you would say, go to this uh, text, read this first? Uh, or would there be a whole multi oh. multitude that you would recommend? <laughs> yes. Um I think I'd have to break it down a little bit mm -hmm. by topic uh, because there are obviously a lot of introduction to Islam books. Um, but I, to be honest, it's been a long time since I've looked at those. So as an example, when I said I, in, you know, this was back, back in 2005 when I designed that core course on Islamic studies uh, for the university in Pakistan that I mentioned, at that time, I did a review. I sort of read all these different introductions to Islam books, and I found none of them to be perfectly, um, you know, capable of doing the job. So I made it like a packet, a reading packet from many, many different sources. But from that time, and so I'm not so sure if anything better has been published in the last 10 years or more recently, but at that time, I think the best introductory single book was called The Vision of Islam by William Chittick and Sachiko Murata, who are very interesting. Uh, so you, you won't be able to tell by their names, but I you know, will 
you know, but everybody in academia knows, they're both actually, um, you know, people who accepted Islam later in their life. Uh, and they were both professors at SUNY Stony Brook. But also interesting because William Shida came from the Anglo-American tradition and Sachiko Murata, as you can tell from her name, came from a Japanese tradition. So it's also another a very interesting perspective that they have coming from two different traditions to yet the Islamic tradition. And I actually felt that their introductory book, if there was a single volume, just an overall introduction, I probably would still recommend that. Then if we were to take a couple of key topics, so let me start with Islamic law, although I should probably, well, let me start with the Quran. So a lot of been, a lot of people have a lot of views, a lot of discussion that, you know, should, how approachable is scripture directly. Uh, but I actually think, again, this is the Chicago method, right? That you should just dive right into a text. Don't worry so much about the context. Don't worry about situating it. Sometimes there's something to be said about encountering the text on its own terms and letting the text speak for itself. And no doubt after that, then one can then consult secondary sources and place things in their context. So then the question would arise at what's the best English translation of the Quran? Again, a lot of discussion would be on this. Um, I would say uh, it's really hard. I, you, you actually find entire one to two hour podcasts by different professors, academics, Islamic scholars, discussing just this one question, what's the best English transition of the yeah. Quran? Uh, I would say, you know, for somebody who's not very familiar, which is what your question was, there's a transition by Thomas Cleary, uh, who actually translated a lot of what he felt were the great books of the great traditions of the world. Um, Taoism, Confucianism, all types of books. So I would say perhaps the translation of Thomas Cleary uh, might be an interesting place for somebody who's very new to start. Uh, yeah. Maybe I should stop here because if I start doing all the topics, then oh, you'll yeah, end exactly. up with another. You'll end up with another guide, another a guide. guide. But I think this gives me an idea because, you know, Josh, you've actually given me an idea because when I made these three guides for epistemology, philosophy of religion, and Islamic philosophy. I realized I have to make a guide called Introduction to Philosophy, like a Philosophy 101, because that would probably be a better place for people to start who are novices. Mm -hmm. And I think now I should actually make the Introduction to Islam guide, like an Islam 101, because yeah. it probably would make sense to have some more a general background to Islam before going straight into Islamic philosophy. So I think yeah. I will forever be indebted to you, actually, for this. Well, <laughs> thank you. I'll be dedicated to you. Yeah. And I'll be the first one reading it. Uh, I look forward to reading that. It has been a real pleasure, uh, not only to have you on the podcast, Kamal, but even more to have you as a colleague here at CTI. It's, you've enriched our conversation so much. I've learned so much from you in these months. And I look forward to being in further conversation and continuing to learn from you. So thanks so much for, for all of that. No, thanks so much, Josh. And it's been a pleasure to, you know, meet Will and yourself and everybody at CTI. You've been very welcoming. And thank you so much for this podcast because it sort of gave me the opportunity to, you know, share in a relatively short form many ideas and things that I've sort of felt and experienced and thought about. And I, I hope it's of benefit uh, to the listeners. And, you know, I think Josh and I would always welcome also hearing back from any of the listeners. Um, we'd love to Absolutely. engage. Uh, your audience in whatever manner. 
Absolutely. And that's a very helpful thing to note. I would say you can email us at cti at ctinquiry.org. We can put that on the screen, but cti at ctinquiry.org with any comments, questions, and we'll try to be back. Uh, we'll have responses even. Thanks a lot, Kamal. Thank you Bye -bye. so much, Josh. Bye-bye. Thank you.